Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Floor 9. As always, I'm your host, Adam Simon, the Managing Director of the IPG Media Lab. And this week, we're going to be talking about the topic of the moment, the topic of 2023, the rise of generative AI. And to join me this week, we've got two guests from UM's global team. And I'll let my guests introduce themselves. Hey, Adam, I'm James Fox. I'm the Global Chief Strategy Officer here at UM Worldwide. Hi, Adam. I'm Andy Littlewood. I'm the Global Chief Product Officer at UM Worldwide, and it's nice to be here. I'm looking forward to some AI-inspired chat, conversation, and jokes, hopefully. And just to be clear, both of you are real humans, at least as far as I can tell from Zoom. I do not believe you've replaced yourself with AI chatbots quite yet. To start us off, let's just lay out a general definition of what we mean when we talk about generative AI. Artificial intelligence is a term that gets used as a pretty broad umbrella for a lot of emerging technologies and a lot of things in emerging software. When we say generative AI, we're pretty specifically focused on the new crop of artificial intelligence that can actually create content in and of itself. These are things like large language models, like those built by OpenAI and Anthropic that can process all the text on the internet and then generate text back for you as you ask it questions. Image generators like Midjourney and Stable Diffusion that can do the same thing for images. We've been talking a lot at the lab about generative AI this year because pretty quickly we've seen that spread from text and images to every form of media already, right? There are startups working in every area to sort of bring these generative capabilities of artificial intelligence to consumers, to creators across the board. Does that definition work for you guys? Do you have anything that you would like to add to that that you think is important? It's a um, pretty good summary. Whenever anyone asks me to define generative AI, I always start with the definition of AI. I think it's pretty similar to yours. AI is computers doing tasks that require human intelligence, computers thinking like a human. And the main way they're doing that is through neural networks, mostly. If we think about the context of that, we've been doing it since about the 1950s. A couple of the highlights that really stand out for me, I'm a bit of a chess fan. So I like when uh, IBM Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov in 1997. I think uh, Kasparov walked away in the sixth game frustrated. Really the pivot point that you're touching on generative AI kind of happened. It's hard to put your finger on it, but it happened around about 2014, 2015. I think that really began. And I was looking back and it, you know, obviously in the fifties, they, they used to test AI with the Turing test, right? Alan Turing. I'll give my Scottish accent around that one. <laughs> but um, the first AI to beat Turing was a Google program, which was Eugene Gustman, 2014, if you remember that one. It was an AI that managed to persuade, I think, a, a good number of 30 interviewers that it was a Ukrainian 13-year-old boy, which was a pretty interesting turning point. And then after that, it kind of accelerated, right? And you saw DeepMind come through. AlphaGo was, was their program that could beat the gold world champion in 2016. The definition of AI is thinking like a human. Then generative AI is machines generating something new like a human. Right. And, and that's kind of how I would put the parameters around it. But I always enjoy a little trip to <laughs> No, I like that. And I think that's some good background and history as to how we got to where we are today. 
I think the way you've both defined it is really encapsulated. I think to take Andy's discussion around Kasparov being beaten by Deep Blue and then AlphaGo beating Lisa Duck at Go, the two things were showed, I think, to me, the difference between old AI and generative AI. For Deep Blue, the AI was really about how many moves could it memorize. So it, it was able to analyze hundreds of thousands of games and it happened to have a bigger and quicker memory than Gary Kasparov. Whilst Go was actually taught to play by itself and gradually figured out to the point when it started to beat the world champion, people couldn't understand why it was making the moves it was making. And actually some of those moves didn't resolve themselves for another 200 moves afterwards. So the computer was able to see things that no human expert could. And to me, that really is generative AI. And we start to see that when we use it, when we use it for idea creation, when it starts to create ideas that are often completely alien to us, because it's not coming from the point of view of a human, it's coming through from the point of view of a machine. And oftentimes that will unlock thorny problems simply because a human brain wasn't conditioned to think about a problem in a certain way. And AI will just give us a glimpse into an alternative way of looking at it. To me, that's true generative AI. And do you think we're there at this point with the generation of tools that are currently on the market? I think we're just scraping the surface. This isn't the end of the beginning. It's not the beginning of the end. We're really, really early in our journey on AI. Once computers start programming themselves and creating programs that can create other programs, I think we're going to see a huge surge in creativity and programming. Once our own industry, the marketing industry, have really got our hands on this thing, I think we're going to see a Cambrian explosion in creativity. I think we're going to see that in the art world. We're going to see it in finance. We're going to see it in law. We're already seeing it in medicine. Some of the things that AI can do in medicine from a diagnostic perspective is almost magical. They can now predict cardiac arrest 48 hours before it occurs, you know, if you're hooked up to the right biomedical indicators. So I think we're just beginning to understand what the scope of AI could be, but I don't think we're anywhere close to really seeing that vision played out in the real world, at least for another couple of years. We're already, according to Gartner, at the peak of inflated expectations, right? And I do think in all industries, we live in hyperbole a lot of the time. But I do agree with James that we have much, much more headroom to go. And I think, you know, when I see things like that, generative AI is at the peak of inflated expectations. And if you know the Gartner hype cycle, the next thing is the trough of disillusionment. I think some people will be disillusioned, but... What I think is most telling, most studies at the moment are just pointing to the incredible amount of increased productivity you can get from AI, right? There's an awesome study that's just been done by the Boston Consulting Group where they took several hundred analysts and gave them AI as the experiment group. And then they took a control group of several hundred analysts and didn't give them AI and had them complete eight consultancy tasks. So standard stuff like doing evaluations of companies, creating strategies, creating forward-looking plans. And what they found was that the ones using AI were about 40% more productive. They were measured by an objective panel and, and they measured the ultimate quality of the output. So the quality and, and productivity was about 40% better for those using AI. And I think that's really the question. We have all of this headroom and it's really down to the organizations to make the most of that and figure out how to ingest AI into their processes. And I think those that become disillusioned and reach the trough of disillusionment will be the ones that 
probably didn't experiment enough or, or didn't really work out the right way to bring it into their organization. I, I don't know what you think about that, James, but. Yeah, I think that's true. It feels to me like the early days of the internet. And when I see AI's applications at the moment, they almost feel like very early banner ads, you know, just very early hints of what can be done. So Virgin Voyages just created this personalized AI where JLo would invite you onto a cruise and it'd be utterly personalized to you. And to me, that just feels like those early banner ads, you know, that you like sell puppies <laughs> and stuff like that. It's like I can see the industry is just playing with it like a toy and gradually they're going to become more sophisticated. We're going to see, I know certainly in my world, the world of strategy, AI is already, you know, if I need to summarize articles, if I need to do a competitive review, all those things are much easier. You know, thematics are very well applied when you use AI. We can take 50 customer interviews and we can get the themes in 35 seconds. These things are game changing in some ways. Mark Reed, WPP, claims that AI should reduce costs by 10 or 20 times, which is quite a big step from Mark Reed. It's going to be interesting to see how we use our time when our time has been taken back by AI to a certain extent. Will it be used for more productivity or will people just kind of goof off a little bit because they've got their job done that much quicker? It's going to be very interesting to see how our workflows change over the next year as we start to rely more and more on AI doing the grunt work, the manual automation work that we as a media company have a lot to do of. You know, I think it's important to note when thinking about that Gartner hype cycle is that a lot of technological progress doesn't happen in a smooth upward line, right? There are moments, there are big bang moments where we jump forward in capabilities. And I think clearly what's happened in the past couple of years is that there's been a leap forward in terms of the accessibility of these technologies and the ability to productize a lot of these AI projects that have been in research and development labs around the world. And that's why it feels like right now we're at this, you know, the expectations are very high. And I do think that it is somewhat likely that when we don't have chat GPT, you know, GPT-6 by the end of 2024, and that we haven't doubled and doubled again our capabilities in the next 18 months, that there will be a little bit of a pullback in terms of not capabilities, but sort of media's, the press's enthusiasm around these things, right? It gets boring writing about these new advanced AI tools are getting integrated into the things you're using every day. You can only write that story so many times before people stop clicking on it. And I do think that the press cycles drive a lot of that disillusionment. The example that I've been using as we've been talking about generative AI with clients is the metaverse, is that we were talking about the metaverse for you know a year, a year and a half, and we don't talk about it so much because the press doesn't write about it so much, but it's mostly because it hasn't changed very much. There are still hundreds of millions of people engaging in metaverse or proto-metaverse platforms every day. The prevalence of spending on digital goods continues to go up and to the right, but we haven't had a step change in sort of how you engage with these platforms. And nor has there been the adoption of these platforms by audiences that hadn't really been using them before. The growth is all in the same places and it's all younger generations and it's all the similar minded people. That is partially the sort of driver behind this hype cycle that if you think about the hype cycle as actually being about the hype and not the technology itself, I do think that there might be a little bit of a pullback in the near future as we just wait for this generation of AI technologies to sort of infiltrate itself into every part of our workday and our lives. 
There was an old joke in Silicon Valley that anything that is still in development is called AI and anything that is shipping is just a feature. And I do think that a lot of the things that we are very impressed with today, even by the end of next year, we'll be thinking about it. Oh, of course, I can just ask whatever chatbot that I want to summarize an article for me and it can pull out the salient points and read it to me while I'm driving. Of course, it can do that. But I think that we will still see the behind the scenes development and deployment of this technology into lots of places of our daily lives. Yeah. Although, Adam, one just to kind of provide a slightly contrarian point of view on that. I've heard a lot like, you know, last year was the metaverse, this year it's AI, next year will be something else. I don't think that's right. I think technological innovation works when it's both bottom up and top down, right? So when there are people creating technologies at the very bottom and there are large corporations shipping technology right at the very top. So I think with the metaverse, that was kind of like a top down. So like Zuckerberg wanted it, but it requires hardware, right? And it's quite difficult for people to kind of get involved in the metaverse unless they have that hardware requirements it sort of becomes a chicken and egg situation i have a feeling with ai just like you're saying it's starting to get integrated into everything and it's almost kind of insidious how it's doing it apple are being very smart they're kind of injecting it into their products and services rather than keeping it separate i think microsoft was starting to do the same so i think what you're going to find is a lot of people at the bottom are going to find uses for ai just like individuals within industries are saying you know what this could be great for writing a brief or this could be great for reconciliation of my numbers or whatever it may be, as well as you've got all the major tech players that are pushing it and integrating into all their products. So I've got a feeling that AI is going to be a bit more stable than metaverse when it comes to hype, because I think it's something that is both desired by the masses and kind of being pushed by the corporations, as opposed to metaverse, where I've never really felt there was a real desire from it, from gamers or from anyone below who've been asking for this metaverse. It's, it more seems like it was a solution in search of a problem. That makes sense. I would say if you talk to any 12-year-olds in the U.S. who are in Roblox every day, they're already living in it. Let's not get caught up on the metaverse semantics because I think there's definitely something there. But I hear your point that there is pressure from both sides. There is both, I think, interest, obviously, from consumers, and that includes consumers of all ages and professions down to high school students, as we've seen, as well as obvious interest from the top. And I think the interest from the top, from my perspective, and I'd love to know what you guys think about this, is partially excitement about a new technology, but also part partially driven by the impulse that has driven a lot of these hype cycles over the past few years, which is looking for the next thing that might unseat the current incumbents, right? Everybody's looking for something, a lever they can use against Apple and Google in particular, and in some cases, Meta. Seeing AI as potentially something that could unseat the current balance of power, particularly when we talk about folks like Microsoft, right? Like they're obviously a big, important company, but they don't have the lock-in that someone like an Apple or Google does on the mobile side. The business incentive being there definitely helps as well, which I think was certainly Zuckerberg's impetus for pushing the metaverse a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, the interesting point there is that a lot of those companies, it may have been an opportunity to unseat Google and unseat Meta and unseat everyone else, but they were on it. And I think to go back to James's previous point, you know, one of the fundamental differences with AI is that we've been using it actually since arguably 2013, 2014, in early stages in business applications. So I think, you know, you saw Google buy DeepMind. You've seen how Meta have approached now AI development and have kind of built an open source model that's really pretty strong. And obviously Microsoft have taken control of OpenAI. They recognize the threat to the moat and they've built a new moat. 
a new AI mode. <laughs> it's a big challenge. These companies continue to be the best at seizing on new technology and making the most of it. And that's why they are where they are. What I found interesting about generative AI was if you'd spoke to people four or five years ago, the assumption was that technology would come for the menial jobs. All the menial work in the world would be automated and what would we do with all of those people? And the interesting thing with generative AI is it's not necessarily coming for those jobs, right? It's coming for creative thought a lot of the time and creative work. And I think that has been a bit of an interesting judo flip that's happened with technology and that's now what we're wrestling with as it comes in on a slightly unexpected path. And then what do we do with that as companies? How do we embrace that in the right way? That to me is the challenging path of technology. And I think it probably take us in a bit of a different direction as a result of that. Let's talk a little bit about just sort of the landscape and the large players in the landscape. We sort of touched on this a little bit, but I think it's worth um, spending a few minutes just sort of talking about, obviously, OpenAI is perceived as one of the leaders in the space. They sort of started off this wave of excitement and their partnership with Microsoft obviously was formative and really the thing that got Google's attention. Google obviously being the other major player in the space with their own proprietary technology that they'd been showing off in public, but not really releasing as and productizing in a way for a long time and this really forced their hand to sort of hurry up and, and get it out the door, hurry up and ship it. I would put those on one side. On the other side, you have folks like Meta, who is open sourcing, as you said, Andy, open sourcing their technology to try to commoditize it and make it available to larger players. Amazon is right now taking a sort of everything approach, a kitchen sink approach. They obviously most recently led a huge investment in Anthropic, which is the independent company outside of OpenAI that folks were most bullish about. But they also have a partnership with Hugging Face and basically are just trying to make AWS the go-to place of choice if you want flexibility of whose models you're using. And then Apple is, of course, being very Apple and staying very quiet. We've heard rumors that there's a lot of developments happening behind the scenes internally. And then, of course, there's a huge long tail of thousands and thousands of startups who are developing technology that is a little more niche, a little more specialized. But probably within that big realm, there's probably a handful that will wind up being important to at least a specific industries, if not everybody down the line. What do you make of this sort of landscape? And do you have any thoughts about how it might develop in the near future? If we come back two years from now, are we still going to be mostly talking about OpenAI and Google? Or do you think there's going to be somebody else who will be in the mix as an important third player? It's a great question. I'm not sure I really know the answer is the honest thing. I think what I would say is don't sleep on Amazon. Although they're not known for their AI applications necessarily in the consumer space, although they do have some, they are very advanced when it comes to e-commerce, logistics, and all the cloud services. They've been developing a whole host of AI technologies. So at some point, I expect them to kind of monetize that, find something consumer facing. But I think like Andy was saying, this is all about how do you develop a moat, like a technological moat that can keep your people away. And it's following that pretty capitalist model, which is small companies becoming mid-sized companies, then getting scooped up and acquired by the top four, top five. And I think a year from now, what we're going to see is verticals within Microsoft, within Google, within Apple, which will be your medical AI, your legal AI, your marketing AI. I think there'll be an AI for every industry and Microsoft will then kind of include that as part of your package. Lots and lots of small companies are going to find those needs niche specialisms. Gradually, they're going to be acquired and we're going to get back to these probably four or five big players. Yeah. 
James kind of summarized it really well. The thing I'm thinking about most is AI is really only as good as the subject matter you can train it on. And that's where the bulk of the magic happens. The models themselves, you know, neural nets and the advances that we've made there and making those faster and better. Ultimately, those advances are made by having great training data and being able to refine and remodel, which is kind of what Google went through that process around about 2015. And that spurred a lot of their changes as they added transformers to their neural net models. That is the thing that is kind of most interesting to think about now as you see legislation kick in. More and more publishers are saying you cannot use AI on our subject matter. There are very real and large-scale copyright issues emerging. When you stand back and think about these companies that are leading the way, you've got to think about the ones that really have the most right and the best breadth of data to use and then train their AI on. And I think that is a super interesting train of thought and will ultimately discern which of these is the most successful. And I think, James, to your point, you know, Amazon has a lot of great data to use. You know, obviously Google has a ton. Meta is maybe slightly less advantaged than those companies and the true data that they can use. This will start to separate what's going to happen. And it's probably why Meta have chosen an open source approach, right? So that they can continue have other people train, refine, and develop their models. I think each one is kind of finding their own groove and own way of using it. The interesting thing with Apple was the quote that I picked up most often around AI. I mean, everyone's talking about the fact that they're not really talking about AI, but there were a few golden quotes in there. And there was one that said, AI is integral to every product we build. And I think that summarizes Apple. They're not necessarily trying to get the acclaim or the PR, but they are focused on excellence and product and how technology can support that. And I think that again is another great lens to put those competitive companies through, like which of those are going to try and drive true product differentiation with AI, which is a, where I think the real substance will come from. Your point about data is important, and it does seem like the next phase will largely be driven by the ability for these models to incorporate private data, whether that be your sort of enterprise level data, which Microsoft is already rolling out, and then Google has announced that they will do for their office and enterprise suites. And back to hardware for a second, we saw a bunch of interesting hardware announcements from Humane and Rewind.ai and a few others basically saying, we're going to capture everything from your personal life and start integrating that into models as well, whether it's your job or your personal life, make that searchable and trainable for models. I think certainly on the enterprise side, there's some obvious implications there. The sort of consumer use cases to some folks a little dystopian, but also maybe inevitable in the trajectory of where we're going. How quickly do you think these models and these technologies are going to start incorporating this more private data? And is a possible inflection point this sort of consumer facing AI hardware that starts to potentially be wearable devices that can start to record things? How feasible do you think that is? Not technologically, but sort of culturally and socially. <laughs> uh, culturally for me, I mean, I think we've been flirting with the quantified self for quite some time and Apple Watch kind of really helped mainstream that. And I think there's an emerging behavior or an emerging attitude that it's okay to take personal data as long as I control it, as long as I opt in, as long as it doesn't leave my device. But I want to understand myself better. And AI is really good at that. In fact, one of the things open I had to do was disable their therapy function because so many people were trying to use it as a psychotherapist. 
it's an interesting thing, but I think we are conditioned to accept technology. I think uh, Gen Z and Gen Alpha are much more comfortable with the idea of giving up their own personal data as long as they get something valuable back in return. And I think they have less scruples about privacy simply because they've grown up in a culture where their photos have always been distributed online, publicly. They grew up with social media. So it's less of an issue for the emerging generations who are going to be the early adopters of this technology. But be interested to hear what Andy has to say on that. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it's the next wave of consent that we will be asked for. We're all now used to clicking accept all or accept no cookies on a website. This is what's next. It's like, okay, we're going to passively collect a lot of your data so that we can bring you more useful services, products whatever they might be. And as James says, some generations, arguably some people are more comfortable with that than others. And I think it ultimately boils down to that value exchange. The rub for me is where people are using things created by other people to make their models better and create a final product. And I think that beyond consent, there's going to be a large battle over commercial consent and who's how and where people are going to let the resources that they produce be used. And the open web with so much of that available and has already been scraped and used by AI models. I think what we're going to see is more and more of that getting locked down. And um, so what we might actually see is even more control around how you can access the open web and what can access the open web. And if I might add one more point to that, you know, another interesting area is synthetic surveys or synthetic research, whereby we can use AI to ingest surveys from different audiences, and then we can get it to predict responses based on statistical likelihoods of agreement or disagreement or emotionality or whatever it may be. Now, whose consent are we asking for there? Because we're asking synthetic agents, their opinion based on human responses made by real humans who may be de-anonymized or anonymized. It becomes very, very murky. And when you start to apply that to the political landscape, when you start to take large-scale presidential surveys using synthetic voters, you can tip elections. There's lots of very murky moral issues around that. And I think since market research falls squarely within some of you purview, we are going to have to try and lead on some of these issues to try and figure out where the ethics lie, where does consent need to be drawn, and how do you express consent once your answers have been taken, ingested, and then used in a context that you were unaware of. That's why I think we're really very close to the beginning. We haven't even worked out what the problems are yet, but we will, and then we'll figure out how to fix them slowly over time, I think. Yeah. And if you follow that train of thought, there are like second and third order jobs that we haven't even thought of yet. So it's pretty interesting. I think that's a great example of a pretty tangible use case for marketers, though. How else do you think are some of the more interesting ways that brands and marketers can take advantage of this technology today? Well, there are so many. The big one, it's probably not something that can be fixed today, but, you know, Andy's probably going to roll his eyes because he's heard me say this a lot. I have a feeling that AI may make the advertising business implode. I think at some point you are going to be able to ask AI a purchase decision, and it's going to be able to help you come up with a better decision than advertising would have been able to. Because frankly, advertising will manipulate your emotions for 30 seconds in order for you to buy a certain car or a certain dishwasher. Now, if AI can simply tell you based on your needs, based on who you are, your 
your income, where you drive, all your credit card data. It can say, this is the best car for you. And by the way, this is the best time to buy it. And this is the deal you should be looking for. Why do Ford need to advertise at that point? They don't. They just need to get higher up the rankings on ChatGBT or whatever large language model they're interested in. For marketers, we could become like map makers or cartographers. You know, they're very popular. Everyone, if you drove a car, you had to have a map until you didn't, right? And the second the phone became a better map than the book, no one has a book. And so we've got to be really careful about that in advertising. So advertising is going to have to find ways to either integrate itself more into entertainment or content. That could be one way, or it may need to find completely alternative routes. Our industry may look like the SEO industry for ChatGBT. We don't know. So I think there are some really far-reaching ramifications for marketers. But again, we're still at the very beginning of trying to figure out what some of those problems may be. But I think that's the biggest one. And it's the one that makes my blood run cold. Why do you need to buy media if one's decision-making is done through ChatGPT? There's a question back on that, James, will help your blood run warm again. Can generative AI make you want something? You know, I think still the role of advertising in a large way. I think definitely it can help us mediate decisions better and navigate better and maybe with it some plug into our preferences and our lives start to predict some elements. But I do strongly believe that humans aren't rational. There will still be that until AI can replicate consciousness, which is some way off. And we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, the both super interesting points. I think, James, to your point, in some organizations, obviously, in some industries, product development and marketing are very tightly integrated. And one solution to that might be that it's more about defining the product up front and understanding what people are asking for than it is about marketing in the way that we sort of think about it more broadly today. If I'm Hallmark and it's Valentine's Day and I know that there are going to be half a million people typing in what's a good gift for Valentine's Day, you know, I want to make sure the greeting cards, a handwritten greeting card is right up there as the most personal thing. So how do I as a brand make sure that that gets further up the rankings, right? I think that's where it gets really, really interesting because that is going to require creative ingenuity just like SEO does. But there's going to be this constant cat and mouse game between advertiser and large language model. They're not going to want to be necessary vehicles by which advertisers can manipulate them. Yeah, that's going to be the struggle, I think, that we're going to see as we move forward. Andy, to your point around the manipulation side of it, I feel like we're already at the point where these large language models can easily manipulate the, your emotions and desires. At least once a week, I see a story about somebody who has a new AI significant other or has used an AI as part of their grieving process. I think they're very clearly already susceptible to that. The question is, right now, there's not a way to manually pull those strings to guide people in specific directions. But I'm sure that everybody is working on that behind the scenes. You kind of touch on an interesting area. I'm sure you saw the New York Times journalist, um, Kevin Roos, who spent some time goading Bing AI. And as it turned out, that AI gave itself a female persona called Sydney, professed its love for the journalist, and then tried to rubbish the journalist's relationship with his wife. So it's interesting when you think about the malevolence of AI, <laughs> generative AI, and, and where that could go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we only have ourselves to blame. It's really just being trained on our own data. So <laughs> that's the thing. It's a mirror. So in 2016, Microsoft put up an AI bot. They called it Tay. They had to take it down after 12 hours because it was mirroring all the offensive language it was finding on Twitter. 
AI mirrors us. The emotional manipulation, the malevolence, and also the good stuff that it can do. It's all just a mirror of who we are. It's really interesting when Reddit went on strike, they're saying, look, you're building all this knowledge on us, on what we've said. And that's why we don't want to give you free information anymore. And I don't know how much Reddit or Twitter you read, but it can be a dark place. And that is what is fueling a lot of these large language models. So it'll be interesting to see how the larger companies put gates and regulations around that stop human malevolence being mirrored back to us through AI. Yeah, and also find better inputs that represent our best selves versus our worst selves. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that is a great note to end on. I think one fun question before we leave, Andy, you sort of mentioned artificial general intelligence as where the AI road leads, I think, eventually. What would your guess for timeline be for when we start to see general intelligence? Knowing that the limited intelligence we have can be incredibly manipulative, is that something that you're positive on or negative on or, or neutral? Well, let me start by saying if I knew that, I wouldn't be on this podcast. <laughs> but allow me to project a little. I think we're still a long way off. They call it the hard problem. It's basically how you can replicate human consciousness with machines. If you think about how large language models work, and there's a great guy you should check out called Stephen Wolfram, who created Wolfram Alpha, and he gives a very good explanation of how large language models work. And it's essentially a prediction of what will happen next with a little bit of abstraction and randomization. So that's how they've become human. I was doing quotation marks there in case anyone can see those, which they can. What we're seeing right now is very similar to humans, but it's not human. And I think you see that in the malevolence. I think you see that in the problems of hallucination that people talk about. We're still, even in a basic function with generative models of LLM, not human. And I think we're somewhat away from that, maybe five years away from that being closer to human. And then if you think about truly replicating human consciousness, I think we're probably still a few decades away from that reality. Frankly, we don't understand it. So how can we help machines understand it? That's the thing. We don't have a working model of consciousness. No neuroscientist does yet. So until we have that, it's going to be, like Andy says, it's called the hard problem for a reason. Like, how do you have something non-physical emerge from something physical? How does thought emerge from a brain? Philosophers still haven't even figured that out, let alone the physicist or the neuroanatomist. So I think there's going to be a way. But that said, I do think it's going to be able to mimic human consciousness in a way that on a surface level, Within five years, it's going to be somewhat indistinguishable. It would pass the Turing test pretty easily. But I think the way in which consciousness actually works is a long time coming, probably not in our lifetime. Thank you both for joining. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. We will be back in a couple of weeks with probably less existential dread on the next episode of Floor 9. <laughs>